Welcome to another episode of the Underground Bunker Podcast. What a treat it is for me to have with us today, longtime Underground Bunker reader, participant, friend, Christian Stolte. Christian, how are you, man? I'm great, man. How are you? Wonderful. You know, I uh, I thought of you after the verdict. Uh, I know you were following along with the Danny Madison coverage. And immediately, people started asking me questions about the Masterson family, their their actors, how this might affect them. And so I thought of you, and we'll get to that eventually. But I am so thrilled that you're here because um, besides a star of Chicago Fire, clearly one of the most important credits on your resume is that you were the star of HowdyCon Chicago in 2018. (laughs) It's all anybody wants to talk about. <laughs> you sang a song. You told us stories. Wow, that was some. That was a fun night, wasn't it? It was a memorable night. I had a great time. Well, let me ask and you I something. I got to meet a lot of underground bunker people who I only knew by their handle, and so it was. That's how people would introduce themselves. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes they'll come up to me and say, "I'm so and so," and they I think they expect me to know their handle. I know a lot right. of them. I do. I know a lot of them, but not all of them. So I I, dis- I feel like I disappoint them if I don't immediately. Uh-huh. But oh, uh, yeah. I, I got to ask you a question. You you told something of your background in that that night. I m- might need you to ask uh, go over it a little bit again for the folks who, who weren't there. But my first question is, which came first for you, the Scientology or the acting? This. Scientology, and it was it was pretty brief. Um, it was 1989, and uh, I was living in Houston. The year prior to that, I was living in Omaha and met a guy who I, I worked with who was uh, just a classic good old boy from Kentucky. Um, he had spent his you know his younger years uh, growing tobacco and stuff like that. And he is the one who, out of the blues, told me uh, that he had read Dianetics and found it fascinating. Nothing about this guy would have suggested he would even pick that book up. Right. But, of course, I'd seen the commercials. I was vaguely aware of it. I didn't know what to connect it with in any way. It was just another sort of something in the fringes of the pop culture landscape. I wasn't even curious about it. But he started talking about it. And he wasn't really proselytizing because he didn't know anything beyond having read the book. Mm. And then he looked into, well, where can you go to apply this? And there wasn't anywhere near at all. And we were, as I said, in Omaha at the time, nothing going on there. Uh, But then I got transferred to Houston and it turned out there was a, a mission in Houston. So I said, I am going to look into this. And I had a job at the time I was working in the funeral industry, same as in in Omaha. Uh, That was four years of my life. And um, so I was a manager of an office. And what these what what, the the people who worked for me would cold call people about their funeral plans. Let's not get into that. But anyway, (laughs) it was a lot. You know, I would work from like eight o'clock to about six thirty seven. And then uh, I hopped on my, my motorcycle and rode down to the mission there to check it out. And I remember just I was I was vibrating in anticipation. I really felt like something really magically significant was going to happen here. Right. right? right. <clears throat> and so I went in to the org in a very old 
building. Um, kind of charming, but more rundown than charming. And I went in and met all of the people. And I will say, in retrospect, they all seemed sort of uh, like castaways, like people who weren't really actively participating in society, who for one reason or another didn't quite fit in, but they had their own cluster. They had their own values. They had their own language. And they had a system by which they measured each other's progress. And they were all very invested in that. So I went in and signed up for auditing. And um, in the process of doing that, they sent me to the book guy. And I actually did consume quite a few of these densely written books uh, and, and blamed myself for what I did not understand. You know what right, I mean? Something right. would seem unclear or he would seem to be referencing uh, a concept he had not yet introduced. Um, and I thought, well, I've got catching up to do. I'm going to have to work harder at this. So I went through it for, oh, and I ended up, they, they ended up kind of putting things in front of me. And I was just point blank. I said, I, I really can't afford all of that. Right. So, well, why don't you come work here? Mm. And I said, well, I have a job. I didn't love my job. But uh, it paid okay. And they said, well, if you come and work here after hours, after you get off of your job, then we can give you auditing free and blah, blah, blah. And it all sounded, it sounded good in the context of me wanting to kind of immerse myself in it, to, to really get what I can out of this. So and let me, I can started, I ask you what, what year that would have been? That would have been 1989. 89, Okay. So that's right before, I think, when did the Time Magazine story come out? 91, right. Yeah, yeah. So it was before that. And they gave me little glimpses of things that I would otherwise not have been aware of, even though they were sort of, you know, critical of Scientology. Somebody first referenced this Operation Snow White thing to me. Mm. And I don't know why they brought it up. I wasn't probing. But they said... Uh, well, that was a bunch of, you know, bad actors that no longer work for the organization. And, you know, LRH was, you know, it couldn't be blamed for any of that. Um, and that was my only awareness of it was them sort of uh, distancing themselves from it and, and accounting for it and sort of apologizing on someone else's behalf. So I don't know why they bothered to throw that in there. Right. They also way out of sequence told me about the, the whole wall of fire. There was one guy who was really giddy to talk about it. Wow. And so he couldn't wait to share with me this thing that you are not supposed to know about. And I'll be honest with you, it had exactly the effect that they were afraid it would have. It made me think, oh, this is crazy far-fetched stuff. Uh. And I was trying to trying to understand them. Am I in just another situation? where it's like reading the Bible and saying, am I supposed to take this literally? And some people will say, yes, in fact, you are. It, it literally did happen. And some would say, well, no, it's more allegory or whatever. So I thought, no, I'm in some sort of murky waters here because I truly do not believe in electronic fly traps and, and people being thrown into volcanoes. And even it, I was immediately suspicious of the dubious idea that the spacecraft that they traveled in happened to resemble the state-of-the-art uh, carrier planes of the time. Right. Now, that seemed a little weird to me. 
Um, so I started, I got kind of a sinking feeling that it was all kind of, you know, bullshit. And that the people around me who were most revered, who were held in the highest esteem, did not seem like people who could hold their own in general public mm -hmm. at all, never mind doing so well. They just seemed like they were just flaky. Uh, nobody, nobody even seemed particularly good at, at, at communicating and expressing themselves. So that when I would ask a question, you'd be shuffled off to somebody over here to answer that question. There, there, I, I, I recognized that there is a very, even though there was a lot of loose talk I was exposed to, there was also a paranoid mm. vibe of this can't, this person shouldn't tell you about this. You have to go to this person to learn about this. It was also within one week of working there, Tony, that everybody was suddenly in a high state of agitation because somebody from the Sea Org was coming to the mission. Oh. And I I was getting the lowdown as quickly as I could, you know, the the the, the super urgent info dump of what the Sea Org was and what could be expected and all of that. And sure enough, she came in, commandeered my boss's office and brought me in there. And I think, to, not to flatter myself, but probably at the time I may have seemed like, didn't occur to me then, may have seemed like one of the more competent people in this organization. Um, and so she came in and tried to recruit me really hard, mm. like just super persistent. And I remember mm. laughing a couple of times. Because, number one, I thought, you don't know me well enough to really, really hold me, to value me like this. You don't know what I might be, you know, completely incapable of, you know. So uh, I, I laughed a couple of times. And, and she got, the, every time I laughed, she got very stern. Mm -hmm. And said, is the future of the planet a joke to you? And things like that. I said, well, no, but I don't. I don't really think in those terms in the first place, you know, Right, right. Um, the future of the planet is a, a very abstract thought to me. Um, and so I, she said, well, what are you going to do with your life? And at the time I had, I had an urge to act, to create, to write something like that. And then she just kind of said, you can do all of that. You can be in the Sea Org and do all of that. And I started right. thinking now, you know, of all those famous Sea Org actors that have wonderful, wonderful acting careers while in the Sea Org. Right. Uh, but so, yeah, it's tell them anything, I guess, was the the, the sort of policy there. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I escaped that. And then I went through all, I, one memorable night for me that I think was a turning point was doing uh uh, the TRs, the, the bull baiting and all of that. And it was about 11 o'clock at night. And I had been for a while doing this schedule where I'd get to work at about 8, 8.30 in the morning, get off about 6.30 and come there and work till 11 o'clock. And they were never really keen on letting you go at 11. It always felt like, well, you shouldn't want to leave just because it's 11. You know, that kind of expectation of, of full devotion. But one night I'm sitting up there with my partner, Manny. Manny, where are you now? I have no idea. I was with my partner and we were doing the TRs. And we were up on the third story of this old house overlooking more or less a parking lot. And it was probably like a Wednesday night. It was just, it felt like being 
in the most sort of forlorn and forgotten corner of the universe, doing the most futile exercise I could possibly think of. And it really gave me a hardcore, what am I doing with my life? As a guy who really values his free time, why am I surrendering it to this? Right. And we went through the whole uh, bull baiting thing, and I was flatlining for other reasons. They want you to sort of go flatline, you know, because all the charge has been taken out of these words or whatever. I was flatlining because I was just completely disconnected from what was going on here. Mm. Couldn't give a shit about it. Um, so uh, after that, I just started, I, I guess at first it started with me saying, I got to stay late. We got a new computer system and the computer system was a, it took up a whole room back then right, you know right right so and i got to do and i and i did in fact have to do that kind of thing it kept me about an hour later but with that hour later and with my experience up to that point i just did not feel like going into the to the uh mission um i should also say I balked when they when I first started working there and they had me sign a five-year contract because I said, listen, I don't have any idea if I'm even going to be in this town for the next five years. I'll just sign it. Just sign it. Um, I looked it over. I signed it. And within a year, I'm already like, I can't make it in. I'm not. Listen, I got this thing. Now I can't make it in. And I was gone for a few weeks and I was getting phone calls and I was, you know, I was, I was, what, what had, what were they paying you up to that point? Oh, that's the other thing. Uh, the idea that they could, that I could quit my job and work there. What a horribly irresponsible thing to tell somebody. Right. Because they would, I think I was in division six. I don't know why that popped into my head, but it had to do with recruiting new people. Right. I was a guy who knew nothing about Scientology. What am I going to tell somebody to make them want to join? You know, what? how am I going to answer any of the myriad questions they would surely have? I'm in no position to do that, but there I was. So I guess it would be a, a portion of a fraction of the new, new co people on course, people doing whatever, or new blood coming in. Um, and so they would hand me an envelope each week that would literally, you could hear change in it. So there would be a couple of loose bills and change in there. I swear, Tony, I don't think it was ever more than $10. For a week, right? For a week. And for this, they thought I should quit my job. Now, to be fair, I didn't go into it thinking I'm going to make a lot of money doing this. I right. wanted the, the the experience of it. I wanted whatever knowledge there was to be had. And, you know, the whole experience of uh, looking up misunderstood words and uh, all of that and going to the clay table. And it all felt very juvenile to me. And I would really be side-eyeing all of the public that would come in. And some of them seemed to be – there was one gentleman – who was, uh, I don't remember if he was a chiropractor or a dentist, but he was one of those, uh, you know how that goes. And he seemed sharp as a tack. And when he would come in, he would put them in their place. Mm. And if they would try to uh, hard sell him on something, he shut it down immediately. Mm. And he knew what he wanted. And he would pursue only that thing that he wanted. And he wouldn't be pulled off his course by anybody. Interesting. And I thought... 
that guy is impressive. I don't know how much of that is his Scientology training um, or and how much of it is, uh, you know, he brought that he brought that with him. That's just who he is. Um, this and I can't even remember his name, but that's another person I would be very interested in, in knowing where they are today. But in I, I slowly found out that there was only one person there at that org who was in fact clear. And when I found out who it was, I was like, "Really? <laughs> really? I expected so much more." Yeah. And and it was somebody who like, I think I mentioned this to you once before in the telling of it. There was a day when the clocks got set back and uh, I showed up and nobody was there and uh, and waited and waited. And then some of them showed up and then an hour after that, some more of them showed up because they had set their clocks in the wrong direction. <laughs> direction. And I thought, wow, when it really has to do with what's going on in the actual world, they are not plugged in at all. Yeah. And also, these are grown people. They've surely spent their whole life dealing with daylight savings time. There's no real excuse for it. Um, so, yeah, I stopped coming in. And then uh, one day I had been putting off coming in, but whatever, to, to, I guess, account for myself. And I finally went in one day and they said, listen, we have a contract. And, you know, this could be I said, listen, I'm uh, um, uh, my office is going to be shutting down. I had gotten the news that the office was shutting down soon. And I said, my office is going to be shutting down, and there's absolutely no reason for me to stay in Houston. Um, you know, there's no family or, you know, no long-term friends here or anything like that. And there's like, well, we have a contract, and you are going to be held to the contract. So things were a little prickly when I left. I said, I don't know what you're going to do, or you, you do what you have to do. I'm definitely going to do what I have to do, and it's, and it's not going to involve staying in Houston. So I waited, didn't hear from them again. And then I just left with the rest of that contract hanging over my head. And then I would continue to get the literature in the mail for the next few years from address to address as I would move. And then that petered out and I'd not heard another word about it. But um, I think I brought this up too. This, this gets a little, a little personal, but um, later I'd had, uh, you know, my older daughter, Corinne, uh, her mother, we weren't married, but she and I separated. And in the in the wake of that, she decided to go try Scientology, mm -hmm. my daughter's mother. Mm -hmm. And she had heard me talk about it was where she, I'm the one she had heard, you know, heard about it from. But nothing I said would have constituted a recommendation. Right. So I'm a little confused um, by what made her look in that direction. Long story short, she's still in it today. Um, and, you know, I don't want to get into her, her personal problems, but it's basically not a happy story. Um, she's basically dropped connection with my daughter. Wow. Uh, we, I, I have grandkids that she does not know. So she is definitely a person who chose Scientology over blood family. Mm. Um, and so that's, I don't know, that's sort of a sidebar story. Uh, my daughter herself identified as a Scientologist until she was 18 years old. And then uh, and then there was a day and we battled about it. I probably okay. didn't handle it. I didn't handle it the way people say you should handle it, because handling it in that way, which was a very passive way, felt like it was going to it was going to prolong this. And, you know, this will go on forever. 
if I have a strong opinion about something and I don't share it with her, that felt unfair to me. That felt dishonest to me. So I would tell her and we would butt heads about it. And then one day she had just turned 18 and uh, I had just finished reading Jenna Miscavige's book mm. about growing up in, in Scientology. And she was in her bedroom and I kind of knocked on the door, had the book in my hand. We hadn't talked about Scientology in a while. There was a little bit of a, a uh, you know, a cooling period there. And I tossed the book on her bed and mm -hmm. said, this is not the way I usually parent, Tony, but I did say, <laughs> I'll give you $100 if you read this book. <laughs> and she said, looked at it and said, oh, you don't have to pay me. I've been wanting to read this. Ooh, wow. I, I said, oh, uh, okay. Gently closed the door, went into my wife and said, she said she wanted to, you know, because this has been the big thing. The big issue my wife and I had had, you know, stewed over for over a decade. Wow! And suddenly she wants to read it. I don't know what had changed exactly, but I over the next couple of weeks I was sort of clocking that book whenever I would see it laying around. Look where the bookmarker is. Okay, she's getting through it. And then we finally had a discussion afterwards, during which she said, uh, "Yeah, I've been, I've been." For a while, I've had a lot of doubts about it, and then I just kind of turned a corner. I don't know why she didn't, knowing it would be the happiest news in the world to me, I don't know why she didn't immediately share it with me. Right. It might have been a little bit of that, uh, might have been pride in some way. Um, the same way you've talked about in, 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 in your writing, the difficulty to let go of something after all of that time, because you then have to say, man, I was supremely wrong. Mm. about very important things for a large part of my life. So this might have been some smaller version of that, but she never looked back. Uh, she has stood her ground. Um, it's, you know, it's basically her story to tell, so I won't get into the details of it, but she's had to make sacrifices. She's had to, she's, she's got family. She's not in touch with anymore oh, because wow. she's considered uh, one more piece of information about that. Around that time, I started working on Chicago Fire. Jason Begay was a guest star on one of the very first episodes of Chicago Fire. And the very next season, they spun him off into his own cop show. Right. And my daughter was then relocating permanently to Chicago. She'd gone back and forth. Her, her, her uh, birth mother lives in Clearwater. Go figure. Yeah. Um, so she, she was moving permanently to Chicago to work in the business. She now works uh, in the camera department. She, she day plays mostly, but she worked on PD for quite a while. And when she first worked there, it was as a PA, a production assistant. And you can be assigned to virtually anything as a production assistant. You might be standing on some lonely street corner, uh, locking up traffic for this next shot, making sure cars don't come. So you could be doing literally anything. But when I... I had met Tony, uh, I'm sorry, I had met Jason and had told him, hey, my daughter's going to come work on your show. And from the very beginning, he pulled her aside. He had a lot of power on that show, still does. But he said, you're with me today. And, and she would just be with him. They would run lines together. They both had, you know what it was like. I know you've talked to Jason, what it was like when he first came out and all of that vocabulary and all of those habits were in his head 
and it was a bit of an obstacle, I think, uh, talking to people and, and making sure you're, you're speaking English and not Scientology. Well, here was somebody, my daughter, uh, 18, 19 at the time, 19, I think, who knew exactly what he was talking about, who grew up in that world. And they became good friends. As a result of that, she got put, my daughter got put on a list um, and and basically uh, her birth mother was told, uh, you can't, you can't uh, communicate with her for as long as she's working with Jason. And you, oh, and it was very specific things even like, you can't come into this particular building where this particular training is done because you have an out ethics connection that needs to be resolved in some way. So that's a weird sort of pressure and kind of blackmail, but uh, my daughter never caves to it and she stood her ground. Um, and, you know, to the, she, she's the mother of three beautiful kids. Wow. Uh, they live they live 10 15 minutes away from us. We see them all the time and uh it's a very very happy ending uh for us. Um my my wife a few years ago legally adopted her um for various reasons, but part of it was just uh, not wanting her to feel abandoned, which right. functionally she was. Yeah. So all of that ends very happily. And also my need to like during the whole time we were all in dispute about that, we would start every day. Once we got clued into your column, and the, and back then it was the Village Voice, uh, once we got clued into your work, every day would start with that. Anything new? Tony got anything new today? Whatever. And that, that was sort of like our big – everything felt like this could be it. This could be the thing that um, takes it all down. But it was similar to watching uh, the 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 incredible misadventures of Donald Trump and thinking, well, this will take him out of the running. This will turn people against him. And nothing seems to. Um, but so, yes, there was an urgency then to knowing uh, what's new. What is it? What is, 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 is there any progress on this front or whatever? You know, you, you always kept half a dozen to a dozen stories juggling in progress, you know, at any given time. So we were marking that on a daily basis. Finally, when she was out of it and I had no reason to be invested in it anymore, we sort of eased off. We took a little break. And then I, I don't remember what started happening, but things started happening that made me jump right back in and start following it all again. Was it uh, uh, was was it when um, the uh, advertising for Scientology showed up in your new union newsletter or something? I remember you were very unhappy about that. I think, yeah, I think by then I was already I was already back to sort of clocking what was going. Oh, on. Oh, okay, okay. Um, but yeah, that did jump out of me. That was resolved alarmingly quickly. I mean, I don't know how many people sent something in, but I sent in an email immediately, you know, immediately. And it was sort of like I was not polite. You know, I, I said, this is not acceptable. And, and I will actually withdraw from the union if you're going to do, you know. And they sent me an email apologizing, whatever. And, and they did say we have received quite a few, you know, but that's not going to happen again. I mean, you never know. There could be new union leadership. I don't know if it's posted on a wall somewhere. Do not take checks from this person, you know. Right. But but it, so it it could be a fight we have to to wage again. I don't know for sure. 
But uh, yeah, that can't be. That but whatever, can't be right. whatever it was, it got you back. Something pulled you back in. Oh yeah, but I'll be honest with you. I think whatever it was that initially pulled me back in was just part of like this is fascinating, and the more I can be objective and not not emotionally attached to it, the more fascinating it is. I mean, I know you have somehow found a way to keep yourself invested in it, even though, well, I was going to say you don't have any skin in the game, but you do have skin in the game now because you are so well known as someone who exposes what's going on there. So I know you've been targeted by them. I know you, you definitely have skin in the game now, but it's not for the reason most of us do. Yeah. Yeah, I know. People always ask me that. Why do you? I don't know. I just find it fascinating. It's it's just it endless. It's it endlessly is. interesting to me, and I get to meet people like you, and Jason. And I just want to quickly point out that um, I think because he had gotten so high up, and also that he had been interacting directly with David Miscavige, Jason was targeted with some absolutely hellacious retaliations just classic very elaborate uh legal games they had him at one point looking at millions of dollars in liability in court and he managed to get out of that uh that guy i mean they they targeted his kids um just really really horrendous stuff and and then he you know he showed up in going clear he was absolutely terrific in going clear he helped kind of explain the appeal to it and everything um, and now, you know, now he's not, he's not really talking about it anymore. He's, you know, we don't really hear from him anymore and that's fine. I mean, he's got a great career and everything, but boy, for a while there, he had a huge target on his back. Yeah. And I think they picked the wrong guy for a lot of reasons because he has a combination of traits that you don't often see together in one person. Um, he's intimidating. Yeah, you know he's physically intimidating. His his presence is sort of intimidating, but he's also very well smoke, very well spoken, and and smart, and has a way of cutting to the core of something. Right. That I think really is serves him very well in any argumentative situation. Uh, he can be, you know, he can be hard to 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 deal with. If you, uh, I've never been in this position, but if you want thing A and he wants thing B, <laughs> and both thing A and thing B have merit, good luck to you. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I really admire how he handled all that. And the Mark Bunker interview, I don't, I can't tell you how many times I've referenced that. And the first time I watched, I said, oh, geez, this is two hours long. I'm just going to try to get the idea of it. No, I watched the whole two hours because it was pretty fascinating. Yeah, that's way back in 2007 or 8, right around the time Anonymous was happening. Mark Bunker interviewed Jason Begay for two hours, and he initially put out, I think he put out like a three-minute teaser, uh, or somebody did it for him, and that went nuts. And so then he put out the full two hours, and yeah, back then there weren't that many videos online that you could watch about no. Scientology. Right. And and it was very it was very revealing. I guess my problem now there have been as you know, it, it seems to be a almost a genre now. Um, you know, Scientology stories. You know, people people who've left Scientology. The, my problem with a lot of those stories is it just rehashes 
so much. It's it's an introductory thing, generally speaking, you know, and it just takes you through everything that most of us, most of your readers already know and have known forever. And often they'll get some fundamental things wrong and I, I lose my patience with that. Mm. But um, there, I mean, I guess there's still the, the Danny Masterson thing is going to be an interesting test because I don't, I can't think of anything that's been quite this inflammatory yeah. that the church managed to get itself tangled up in so completely. I mean, I feel like they really shot themselves in the foot pretty well on this one. Well, I that's why I went out there. I wanted to see how much Scientology was actually going to be in this thing. Uh, and from that first preliminary hearing two years ago, I was stunned. It was soaked in Scientology. So uh, that's that's what why I kept going every day is is not just because a TV actor was facing these terrible crime criminal allegations, but that it was completely wrapped up in Scientology. I just thought, and then the second trial had even more Scientology than the first one. So, I, you know, that was just fascinating to me. And I think it was horrible for Scientology because always the emphasis was on how victims were being re-victimized, blamed for what happened to them, that they couldn't go to the police uh, you know, uh, what what did did some of that resonate with your experience in Scientology when you were watching that coverage? Uh, well, let me back up to something you had said. Was it not the case that in the first trial there was Scientology intimidation testimony that the judge did not allow because it seemed not to pertain? Right. So she did allow some testimony about Scientology in the first trial. But if you remember that first day when Reinhold Mueller, Deputy DA Reinhold Mueller, started doing the opening statements, he put a lot of Scientology in his opening statements, and she was furious. She dressed him down like, you're not going there. You're not getting that into Scientology. And so he had to back up, and it really felt like there was a, a serious limit on what they could go into. They were allowed to testify to some of it as far as what the victims, you know, when they actually turned in, tried to turn in masters of the Celebrity Center, what they were told. That kind of stuff got in. But the, you always felt like the judge was watching it, like, don't go too far. I think what you're referring to is a, a story that came out today about Damian Perkins. And uh, there was some really interesting potential evidence that was going to come in about witness intimidation by the church. And, of course, the most interesting, I think, to any everybody is that Lisa Marie Presley was prepared to testify that the church had told her to talk her friend Jane Doe won out of going to the LAPD. Yes. And then, and then she died in like January, right? And the trial well, was so, April. Well, no, the trial was in October, November, and the, the judge ruled that Lisa Marie Presley testifying to Scientology trying to interfere did not go directly to Danny Masterson's That's guilt it. or innocence. That's what so, I so you can have Lisa Marie come in and testify to some other stuff, but she can't talk about that. Well, that's the main reason they wanted her in, so they didn't call her at all. For the second trial, she ruled that there was going to be much more Scientology uh, allowed. And maybe they could have gotten Lisa Marie in for the second trial. Yeah. But sadly, she passed away in January between the first and second trial, so we'll never know. But I'm, I'm yeah. still interested in the statement she 
you know, Deputy DA Reinhold Mueller said that she had given them a statement uh, that she had signed. And I hope the, the lawyers for the women in the civil trial can get their hands on that and maybe it can become evidence in the civil trial. Or just give it to me, somebody, please, whoever's got it out there, mm -hmm. right. give it to me. We all want to see right. it. Uh, so so back to your, your other question, I do remember uh, when I was in, at the mission in Houston, again, the, the, the mission that I was part of was never really bustling with activity. So it was a pretty lonely place with visitors few and far between. But I do remember reading something about how if, uh, if someone, I don't remember if, it, if the word crime was used or, or how it was phrased, but the idea was let Scientology handle Scientology's problems. Don't take them outside. In fact, it's out ethics to take them to somebody else. And that sort of fed into my increasing notion that this place is paranoid and, and that everything is an extension of the founder, that all of the weird quirks of this organization are just extensions of the weird quirks of the founder. Yeah. And, and, and I remember the guy, my, my TR partner, I can, I can say Manny. I'm not saying his last name, right? Sure. I'm about to say something that's pretty, you know, okay. Okay. So sure. anyway, he says he's been trying really hard to get a cousin in there. And I said, uh, do you think he would he'd do well in this environment? And he said, well, it's not that he'd do well. It's that he really needs it to handle an ethics problem. And I said, oh, I see. Do you mind telling me what it is? And he says, well, we have found out that he's been behaving inappropriately with some of the kids. Mm. And I said, oh, that's kind of a, a, a police thing. And he went, no, 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 no. And I thought, well, but it is, though. And he, he was like, no, I'm not. And he then it, then it became about. I would get in so much trouble if I did that. And, and it, it was clearly not about doing the right thing. And he had this cousin's uncle, this cousin's parents, I guess Manny's uncle and aunt, were already part of this particular Scientology family. They came oh, okay. processing and whatever. Um, but the, the, the cousin was not. And the cousin had a problem that needed to be handled. But to me, this was not, uh, hey, whether or not you have the tech to, to fix that problem is not the most immediate concern. And I, we really butted heads over that. Mm. And I, I even asked our supervisor, uh, I said, he, Manny seems to think blah, blah, blah. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, no, Manny's right. We can't. And that stuck in my head. That stayed in my head uh, for the very short time I remained there. And wow. then, you know, that particular thing left a real sour taste in my mouth. And I thought, well, it, for people who use the word ethical so yeah. freely, yeah. it seems terribly <laughs> unethical to me. And as far as things sticking in your head, one of the things I wanted to ask you is, uh, even though you were there briefly, did you find that there were ways of thinking that were affected for years after that because that's i hear that from people all the time it takes quite a while 
to to unpack. Uh, I don't think they ever quite got to me to that extent. Um, I, 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 I was not as immersed in it. I was still there. I mean, the, I think it was six or seven days a week. That was the other alarming part. Um, but I was always someone who would ask questions and not even to be challenging, but to understand. And the answers usually left me unsatisfied or somewhat disturbed. And, um, yeah, so I, I guess may, I'm not saying that would never have happened, but I just wasn't there long enough for that to be the case. I do remember there was one thing. I, I, I think I've told you this before, too, but there was one exercise we had to do where we had to go out and find people and experiment with various communication tricks or whatever. And it would be like... Uh, a half act, a half acknowledgement of something and something like that. I don't remember the details of it, but it involved us going up to strangers and asking them for directions and then continuously cutting them off as they try to tell us how to get to this place. And I just felt bad doing it. I felt like, well, I don't want to go back and tell them I didn't want to do it because then they would hammer into me about, no, no, this that, that person's feelings aren't important. What's important is that you get the gain from learning blah 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 so i i stuck with it in a half-hearted way and then my big out ethics moment was when uh they gave us a giant thing of these flyers not even flyers little booklets they look like those weird little cartoon books that churches used to some church used to put out about sinners and stuff like that the, the chick pamphlets all, yeah 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 that's it that's right um, they looked like that, but it was all Scientology stuff, and they gave us an impossible number of them to go out and put on car windshields. And after a few people saw me, after one, two, then three people saw me doing it and said, what is that? What is that? Get that off my car. So I thought, all right, I'm, what I'm doing here really is generating garbage. That's what I'm doing. I'm, 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 I'm already seeing them on the, on the parking lot where people have just thrown them on the, you know, on the ground. So I took about half of the load of it, twisted up that bag, and put it in the garbage can. Ooh. I was kind of at the end of the road with all of this. Right. And so, but I did feel like, oh, this is an overt or a withheld or something like that, because I'm not going to tell him I did that. <laughs> and uh, and <laughs> so I got back to the org. Oh, that was kind of fast. I was like, yeah, well, yeah, I moved fast. Uh, what else you got? Um, so yeah, it all, I wish there was a big event that ended everything for me, but it wasn't, it just sort of petered off. And then I just kind of stopped showing up. Well, I do also also say something about, uh, your situation with your daughter, because I think it's great that you tell that story because I, I do talk to parents who are very, very conflicted about which path to take the quiet passive one and hope the person changes their mind or the more direct one. And I know parents that have tried both avenues and it's just so excruciating. You know, if I'm, you know, cause they know that what, what they tell me is if they do speak up, they're afraid they lot might've lost an opportunity that the person might've reached out to them if they stay quiet and the other way around. Right. But um, I know a couple of families 
that were reunited because the people were loud. I know this one mother in particular that just would not put up with them not allowing to see her son. And she became such a pain in the ass to Scientology. They finally just said, here, take him. Please leave us alone. And I, I told her that I said, people would love to hear that story because parents always want to know which path to take. And she's never she's never agreed to tell her story. So I'm glad that you got to tell yours because yours is similar that you, you know, it, it, I'm sure it wasn't easy, but you decided to be confrontational about it. Yeah, it was really the only e eruptions in my relationship with my with my daughter. Both both of my daughters had, uh, the, you know, they're twenty and twenty nine now, but they're both they were both extraordinarily good kids. Like I never, they were never in trouble. I never had to raise my voice to them or anything like that. So it kind of broke my heart <clears throat> to have to be critical of this thing that she was kind of proud of. Yeah. So it made me feel like a bad person in some way because I'm taking this thing that she, <clears throat> that, that is, lifts her self-esteem and I'm being critical of it. But I remember conversations such as, but, Dad, they do good things because we went to this thing and we gave away free books to people and we blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay, honey, but you did that. Yeah. You went and did these nice things for people and they take the credit for it. And everybody says, oh, Scientology is great, but Scientology didn't do it. You did it. Mm -hmm. So there were little things like that where I would try to soften the blow. But I think of the, the story of the the woman in question that's an outstanding story and, and and i love her in the abstract for for making so much noise that scientology just said not worth it take them yeah but i do feel like i guess it's dangerous to to try to decide that there is a way to do it right and that this will work every time because i could also see that blowing up in her face there's too many it depends on factors yeah. It depends on how how deeply entrenched this person is. Will this person ever get the chance to even see for themselves the truth that you're saying? Or will you know, they stay so much in the cocoon, they'll never see it? And I think uh, often it just comes down to David Miscavige and his idiosyncrasies. Like, for example, somebody like Lori Hodgson. You know, why is Scientology so invested in keeping her away from her children? And I think it's just that she was one of the first people who went to Marty Rathbun's house in Texas to do auditing outside the church when David Miscavige was so focused on Marty and that little independent movement. Yeah. And so that that's like, okay, that's it. She's forever. It doesn't matter how many years it's been. She's no, never. You're you right. Know, I'll bet you're right. That put her on a very special list. Yes. Yes. That I see that where there's some people that the church is much more. Uh, has a much more of a vendetta against than others. And I think you just have to figure out, okay, but what's Miscavige's, right. you know, what's Pips, what's making him angry? Because that's generally right. what it is. Uh, oh, and, and that's, he, he is clearly demonstrably a very petty human being, and yeah. very vindictive. Well, that's what I liked about Jenna's book that you mentioned is that, you know, she's his niece. And what I... You know, there's a lot. There's a lot in that book about her experiences growing up, a kind of a uh, coming of age story in Scientology. It's, it's wonderful, but the parts about her uncle are so good because she, yeah. you know, this young woman 
and I've met her. She's not a, she's just a you know small person. She paints her uncle to be a total coward. Yeah. And I just thought that was so brave of her to do that, to expose you know her uncle. You know that's true. You know yeah. that's true. There, there is stretch, scratch a bully, as they say, you know. Um, that reminds me of uh, one, one thing I left out when the recruiter uh, came in, in Houston there and was, had me s- sitting down at the desk. Uh, she had a contract in front of me. And this was the first I had heard that it was a billion-year contract. <laughs> this was the first I heard looking at the actual contract. I said, "Does that?" And I was like, really, literally, like counting zeros because it's 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 you know, num- I, I have a weird sort of number dyslexia, and I thought I can't tell if that's a million or a billion. <laughs> Give me a second. This is literally for a billion years. This contract. That's right. So how how does that function? And then she flatly says, well, it, when you are reincarnated, we will, through auditing, be able to tell it was you. And then you would be you would be have to re-honor the contract. You would have to continue to serve the contract. And I actually said I acted like I was thinking about it. I think part of what I was enjoying was that everyone was so afraid of her and I didn't give a shit. So so I, I looked at it like I was really thinking about it and I said, I could maybe, maybe do a million years. <laughs> but a billion is ridiculous. You oh. have to agree that a billion is ridiculous. <laughs> a million, maybe. We can talk about a million. That is oh. so great. That is so great. This is see, this is what this is what your true calling was. You need to be a <laughs> performer, an entertainer. Wow. So let's t- let's move over to that side of it. I, I, you know, like I said, when I was uh, reporting on Masterson, and then there was this verdict. Just to give, uh, make sure everyone understands, the Masterson family, uh, Danny and Christopher, are the children of Carol and Peter Masterson, and Danny, of course, was Hyde on that '70s show, which is a very visible role on a very well-known series, lasted I don't know eight or nine years, something like that. Christopher was the older son in Malcolm in the Middle. So less of a starring role, more of a recurring role or whatever you call it. But, you know, he definitely has a career of his own as well. And their mother was their manager. So it's just a very much an entertainment family. Uh, after Peter and, Car- and Carol split up, then Carol got together with Joe Reish. And she and Joe had uh, Jordan and then Alana. And they were Jordan and Alana Reish. But then in 2000 and in 2005, Carol and Joe split up, but he was still around. He was still, you know, uh, in their in his kids lives. But then in 2015, no, 2005, I'm sorry, 2005, um, Joe was expelled. He was he was given a committee of evidence and he was out. And I asked him, I said, at that point, were they still Jordan and Alana Reese? He said, yes, they were. They took the name Masterson after that. So they disconnected from him and then began their acting careers as Jordan Masterson and Atlanta Masterson. Jordan had a recurring role on Tim Allen's show, Last Man Standing. And uh, Atlanta had, a, a, I think, a little more substantial role on The Walking Dead. So they, you know, all four of them have legitimate, you know, substantial acting careers. Um, now, Danny 
lost his job uh, starring on The Ranch, a Netflix show in 2017 when, you know, some of the stuff about the accusations came out. Now he's been convicted of forcible rape. He's looking at 30 years to life in prison. And the question I get from people is, what will this do? I mean, obviously, Danny's never going to work in Hollywood again. But the question I get is, what is going to happen to the careers of Christopher Matheson, Jordan Matheson, and Alana Matheson? Now, Joe Reich told me, you know, Jordan and Alana's father, that he thinks this is really going to negatively affect them. But I talked to some other people, actors in the industry, and they said, no, they'll they'll be able to, it, it really won't affect them. Um, and I certainly don't know much about Hollywood. So I don't know. Do you have an opinion about how this might affect them? I'm confused in the first place as to how they, what the reason was that they adopted the name Masterson. The, it's not like he was a father to them, right? Oh, the Masterson name, their mother's name. Uh, I guess yeah. I, I, I think it was part of disconnection, but also I think by then Danny and Chris had careers. And so it was like, okay, we're going to take mom's name because we're disconnecting from dad, but also the Madison family was already pretty well yeah. known by that time. They thought it would serve them in the business. I think so. I feel like this is where we are now is one of the most ill-defined times in show business. Uh, and I don't trust anyone who says with confidence, here's what's going to happen next. Right. It's just too hard. I mean, I'd say back in the 90s or so, when I first got into it, you could speak with certainty on certain things. Here's how this is going to play out. Um, what has happened in the interim, there's a few things that have happened that matter, but one of them is, there are so many actors who I ask myself, are they working anymore? I've not heard from them in a long time. And then you go on IMDb and you look them up and there's some show they've been on for six seasons now. There's so much oh, television. So much, yeah. So much of it in movies and whatever. That, that If you just looked at that alone, you would probably say there's a lot of competition for attention um, between various projects. And notoriety may serve as fame it may be interchangeable at this point people don't really seem to care how someone gets famous um and there seems to be a tolerance for that i mean good lord uh uh top gun i mean no one seems to give a shit that tom cruise is the spokesperson for a criminal organization no one seems to care at all he's an outlier there's you know you can't go by him um he's he's sort of his own case but I, I guess Scientology has become something people are more aware of. You can remember a time, I'm sure, when people thought, which one is that Christian scientist? Which one? <laughs> you know, they, they, it's all sort of convoluted in their head. Right. But now people, people have been exposed to the stories a lot more in the last 10, 20 years. Whether that results in people having a firm understanding of it, or just thinking, I know the bullet points. I know the basics about this and, and whatever. Um, but I don't know that it is quite as toxic as you and I both feel like it, it should naturally be. I also don't know to what degree the siblings have tangled themselves up in everything going on with Danny. Um, 
uh, Chris, is that the one from Malcolm in the Middle? I thought he was charming as hell on that show. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a, gr- a a memorable performance in in that role. I, I really liked the guy, and he and pretty much all of Malcolm in the Middle, except for uh, Brian Cranston, seemed to all kind of disappear. Mm. Um, so I don't even know if he's been working lately or or not. He may have. He may be one of those where I would find out he's been working steadily. I just haven't seen any of it. So they benefit, in theory, they benefit from the idea that there is so much production. There's currently no production because of the writer's strike, which could also be a factor that could drag out long enough Mm. that people with shorter memories, you know, that that gets lost in the fog of time. Yeah. But I suspect it will be lower profile projects, you know, because we watched a few people come back. I mean, Louis CK, he seems to be having a lot of trouble coming back from, uh, from his problems and that's a one-man act right. that's you know what i'm saying he doesn't he just needs a club to hire him he doesn't need producers and studios and whatever to approve of him but even he there i guess somebody made a documentary about louis ck's comeback mm. that just got shelved i think it was completed and just got shelved wow but that's louis ck suffering the consequences of things that louis ck did Right. I don't know how true it will be when it was a sibling that yeah. did wrong. Okay. I don't know how much, how, or even how fair it is, really. Right. Um, and I guess the the more the more Scientology was brought into the courtroom business, the more it is seen as part of the problem. So simply by virtue of being proud Scientologists, that could hurt them. Um, but. Again, there's just no real across-the-board consistency on that. I don't yeah. think anybody gets paid more than Tom Cruise right now, and he makes no secret of what he is. It's very hard to say. That's a, that's a great point. Yeah, I mean, to me, it was interesting that um, they really made a show. I mean, that, that family section was packed every single day. Uh, the siblings were generally there all the time. Plus, you had people like Billy Baldwin, who's married to China Phillips, who was Bijou's sister, Bijou Phillips being Danny's wife. So the mother was there, the wife, the four siblings, uh, family, friends. They were packed every day. And I just thought it was interesting that Alana and Jordan were there because, you know, this is a trial partly about Scientology. And I couldn't, you know, to me, that they were the most visible symbols of Scientology in the courtroom. They had literally gotten rid of their father's name. Their disconnection from him was so total because what did he do? He, he got kicked out of Scientology. Who cares? Why would you turn your back right. on your dad? Because he got kicked out of Scientology. And they never get asked about it. They never. I I, I wasn't in a position to there in the courtroom. I just I was always uh, cognizant of the fact, Christian, that they were probably looking for ways to kick me out of there. So I was I was being extremely careful about yeah, not saying yeah. not saying anything Very to anybody thought. there. But uh, no, smart. I just I just thought it was amazing that they were there day after day, and they symbolize one of the worst things about Scientology is this terrible disconnection policy that you yourself have run into. Yeah, that is, that is interesting. I don't, and they are, I I don't know. I don't know. I, I guess I wasn't aware that their presence was that much, that big of a part of it. Um, 
I, I guess down the road, there would be, I, I can easily imagine a production in one of the more established worlds, a network or HBO or, you know, Netflix production or something like that. I can easily imagine someone with that kind of standing saying, we don't need the trouble. We don't need the, the, the chaos or whatever may be coming with that. We don't need that kind of attention. But then I could also imagine some fledgling production saying, we'll take it. We'll take whatever whatever attention it is. Uh, we need yeah. people to know about this project. Right. It's, it's so hard to raise your project up above the crowd where it can even be seen. So they could benefit from that. I remember being surprised to hear that, that Rust is going to complete production and come to uh, the theaters or whatever. And I thought that was kind of amazing. And then somebody was saying, are you kidding me? That's going to be the show everybody's going to want to see. And I thought how, how unfortunate that somebody's death is going to be box office gold for somebody, you know? Right. I wonder how, how Baldwin even feels about that. You know, I try every once in a while, I check in on China's YouTube uh, just to see if she might be saying something, but she really hasn't. Um, but that's an interesting dynamic that you've got Bijou Phillips and her husband, Danny, in Scientology. China's a born-again Christian who talks about Christianity on her YouTube channel. She's married to Billy Baldwin. Billy was coming to the court a lot. I don't know what Alec thinks about it. I'll tell you what. Alec was at the theater for Going Clear at Sundance. I saw him in the theater. He was very interested Whoa. in Scientology. Yeah. So... Uh is is Billy a practicing Scientologist? No, no, no. I think I don't think Billy's involved in anything. I think that's actually part of the uh, sort of uh, tension on China's YouTube channel is that she's a born again Christian. She talks about Jesus every day on her YouTube channel, and a lot of it is about how you know her husband doesn't you know he's not into anything, and there's it put, creates tension in their marriage and stuff. So I don't think Billy's interested in Scientology at all. I, I wouldn't have thought that. I met him a couple of times. We have a, a connection from Backdraft. Oh. The, the guy that was the advisor on Backdraft was is a, a key person on our show. He's a retired fire chief, and he's just everybody's pal. He's one of the one of the greatest men I've ever known. Just in every way, in every way you can measure a man. But he, of course, has stayed in, in touch over the years with them. And, I, you know, uh, I, I met I met him once. At a, I think it might have been at a wedding. I think it was a wedding and a funeral, honestly. But I had a long talk with him, and it did not occur to me to address that at all. Hmm. But nothing about him felt like talking to a Scientologist. No, I, I don't think he's involved at all. But listen, are the writers of Chicago Fire... Are they ever curious about your involvement in Scientology? Have they ever talked to you about it? Have they ever been tempted to put some no. little uh, subplot in the show? Our, about ours, ours would not be the show the, for that. The, 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 so safe. The Chicago mission's on fire, and you got to go in and save the bust of L. Ron Hubbard? Oh, oh, oh. I can't. Oh, boy. That would be a memorable episode. <laughs> Uh, I think most people still won't touch that topic at all. Yeah, it's blistering yeah. hot to most people, and there's no payoff. Do you know what I mean? There's, I mean, while you and I would find it fascinating to 
to see a, a mainstream show like ours uh, address that topic, the potential of alienating people is just not worth it to them. Yeah. They don't, I mean, they don't know, oh, for all we know, a sizable percentage of our audience is Scientologists. Of course it's not. Right. There's no sizable percentage of anything that's Scientologists. That's right. But, but I think just in the abstract, they would feel like we don't do hot button stuff. You know, we just don't do it. We're very, very old school on our show. I mean, it, think about the fact that, you know, I, I don't know, marijuana is legal in very, very many places now. But if you were to have someone on our show smoking pot, that would make them, by default, kind of a bad guy. Uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? You can show all of us in the bar every night hoisting beers and whatever. But if some guy's sitting in this apartment show, smoking a joint, well, he's a shady character. Right, you know what right, I mean? Right, right. So we do still live, our show does still live kind of in another time in that sense. And we were never that show in the first place to to, to embrace controversy like that. Well, it's probably, it's, it's the key to longevity in some ways. Yeah, I guess it is. You've had such a wonderful run. Um, but I also just... I, wanted to uh thank you because um i've been out to chicago a couple times i've seen you out there a couple times howdy con was a real treat but you know i've had some issues of my own with projects i've worked on and you've been very helpful i just want to thank you for listening to me bitch and moan about some of this hollywood stuff and you've been I'm really really big, helpful big fan i'm a Big fan of yours. Uh, I, I I don't mind saying that to anybody. You have to understand that for for my wife and and me, you were a crystal clear voice of reason when we were in the thick of it. I mean, we were in the weeds and could see no way out. And there was one guy who was taking this shit on every damn day without fear. And, and this goes back to, as you well know, a time when journalists were like, I'm not touching that. That's not worth it to me. I'm going to look over my shoulder the rest of my life. Thanks anyway. But you didn't give a shit. And you were a hero to us for that reason. So honestly, if there's anything I can ever do for you in some small or big way, you know I'd be happy to do it. Well, you're the best, man. I really, really appreciate it. And I thank you. I for love you, buddy. Up. Thank you so much My for coming pleasure. on the podcast, and I hope I can get up to that city again. I love Chicago. Well, we love you, buddy. You let me know. Keep me posted on that. All right. Thank you very much, man. All right. Love to the underground bunker. I'm